0: Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Joseph Williams, an Associate Professor in the University of Virginia's School of Education and Human Development. His primary research focus is on identifying the protective factors and underlining processes that contribute to the academic resilience of K-12 students of color and those from low-income backgrounds. His secondary line of interest includes multicultural and social justice training practices for K-12 counselors, educators, and other helping professionals. In addition to publishing scholarly articles and book chapters in these areas, He also consults with school districts, communities, associations, and corporations to improve diversity, inclusion, and equity efforts, and engage people in productive dialogue and action. In this podcast, Professor Williams will talk with us about academic resilience. So thank you, Professor Williams, for speaking with me today.
1: Yep. Thanks for having me, Susan.
0: Great. So can you start with defining academic resilience, and why is it important?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for, the again, the opportunity to, to speak. Um, so typically when we're talking about academic resilience, we're really talking about the ability of students to succeed in school despite exposure to personal or environmental adversities, right? Um, and, and, and again, um, we can get into what those adversities will be or, or can be you know, momentarily, but yeah, it's really the ability of kids to do well in school despite the presence of risk factors. Um, Why is that actually important? Um, well, I think it's important for for several different reasons. Um, I think studying uh, why kids succeed provides us with way more information and helpful information to inform interventions and policies than if we just study why kids fail. And so I, I find that the field of education is largely um, populated with uh, educational researchers who are experts on why kids actually fail. I want to be an expert on why kids succeed despite uh, adversities and one of those adversities could be for instance uh poverty and so oftentimes when we think about poverty uh, it's not that kids from low-income backgrounds in and of themselves are somehow deficient or um there's something lacking in them but it's really about thinking about the risk factors that are associated with poverty so when you have kids and ironically enough um, i believe two or three years ago maybe uh, for the first time in a long time that more than half of the public school population students actually live below or near the poverty line so we have a large percentage of students who are again living in poverty and still going to school and pursuing education and so again thinking about how poverty actually limits their access to academic and social support such as tutors or uh, academic enrichment opportunities or summer learning experiences uh, outside of school Poverty oftentimes uh, exposes kids and their families to conditions that actually impact their health, their safety, and well-being, and that could be anything from um, like limited access to healthcare or food instability or unfavorable housing conditions. You know, poverty also actually impacts uh, the ability of parents to have access to um, what we consider to be social capital, right? So, um, partnerships and 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 social networks and services in the community that actually provides. Um, support for kids. And so when you think about all the risks that are associated with poverty, the reality is, what I think we hear less of, is that despite all that, there are actually kids more likely than not who actually do well, who go on to be very successful academically, as well as later on in life. And so my big question is, um, why is that the case? And how is that possible? and How can we learn from their successes and use that to inform interventions to help kids who are less uh, successful, uh, which would be kind of academic resilience in a, in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. I appreciate looking at it from, uh, the success point of view, rather than the fail point of view yeah. that, that that makes sense to me. I understand that. So can you describe what a resilient student looks like and, and what contributes to their resilience?
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, as, as we mentioned, kind of resilient students are, are those who kind of maintain this high level of achievement, um, in terms of motivation and performance despite the presence of stressful events or conditions such as uh, poverty that usually put them at risk uh, for poor uh, performance. But Really, when we're thinking about academic resilience, and there's a reason that we call it academic resilience and not just resilience, um, because a kid can be academically resilient, uh, but still have issues behaviorally or emotionally. Uh, And so again, just because you're resilient in one domain doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be resilient and building healthy relationships and things of that nature. So it's really important to kind of talk about it within the context of academics. And really, it varied from one student to the next. And actually, it can it can grow over time um, or decline based on really the presence of individual and environmental pre- protective factors and processes to oftentimes reduce or eliminate the impact of risk factors associated with poor academic or behavioral outcomes. And so again, um, students are oftentimes placed at risk of poor school performance um, when they're environmental stressors, uh, poverty, homelessness, um, neighborhoods characterized by crime or violence, drugs, racial discrimination, language barriers, those environmental stressors, when they overwhelm their capacity to cope effectively or they overwhelm the capacity of their caregivers to protect them from really the effects of those stressors, um, that actually leads to the poor performance, right? And so um, it's important to think about it as this balance, right? Where you have these individual characteristics and traits and, and values and what have you, but you also have that interacting with the environment. And so, again, um, kids are resilient, but they're not invincible. And so we see that when we don't actually address some of their needs, um, that their ability to stay re- resilient, um, oftentimes it wanes over time. And so this this is kind of the group that you don't really hear about, right? So it's either... Students are doing extremely bad. We need to actually uh, leverage and garner all of our resources to actually help those students, uh, which again, I understand that. Or students are doing really good, and you know what, we need to continue to provide them with opportunities. But there are these students in the middle. They're kind of right on the line, that they're doing well enough not to be kind of flagged for, you know, underachievement or they're in kind of a red zone. But we, we tend to actually ignore those kids. And when we ignore those kids, over time we see that they actually start to slip further and further into that you know what these kids have a serious problem they're underachieving they're underperforming what have you and so again it's kind of like this forgotten middle that we tend to forget about and those would be the academic resilient kids
0: yeah that's a good reminder for all of us to think about uh those kids as well you know for us as parents and for us as community members not to Mm -hmm. forget the kids in the middle and and they have their own factors of concern over time. And to to remember them, absolutely. So what is your connection to the study of academic resilience?
1: You know, I I would probably label myself as, um, well, at some point when I was a student, an academically resilient um, student. So I have a personal connection to my research. I actually find that most researchers, we call it me, me-search, right? Uh, most researchers, when you look at their line of study, it's really, they, there's some personal connection to it. And so for me, it started um, really early in college when um, I was really just fascinated with this concept of like academic resilience. Um, I uh, grew up uh, in the Midwest, Kansas City, Kansas, uh, You know, single parent home. We, we were kind of in and out of poverty, just depending upon um, Uh, work availability for for my mother and kind of despite all that craziness that was associated with like that lifestyle, I still did pretty well, like, you know, academically speaking. Um, And then I had like best friends who live right next door to me who are actually in the exact same situation who went on who actually didn't do so well. And so I was always really plagued with this question of how do you get two people who come from the same environment within the same context uh, and one does well and one doesn't do as well? And usually what I was finding in the research or in the literature is that, well, there's just something special about that kid who did well. Like they're, they're kind of, you know, they're unique characteristics, they're motivated. They, and, 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 and the more I read that while it would actually boost my ego, I knew that something was terribly wrong with that, with that explanation. Right. So it was like, no, my friends, my brothers, my cousins, we all share those same characteristics, right. For, for, for better or for worse, uh, yet we still have these issues. And so for me, it's like, hey, what's going on there? And that's when I started to really study and think about um, academic resilience from a more ecological perspective, understanding that really academic resilience is the result of an individual interacting with their environment, right? And so another way of saying it is, um, like for instance, for schools, uh, the ability of a student to actually display their academic resilience um, to a large degree depends upon the school's ability to nurture the resilience is already there and so I don't believe that resiliency is a trait that you learn I believe that we all have it uh, it's really about environmental supports um, that are there to actually help um, kind of facilitate and bring out the resilience that's there and so again I think the environment is a huge piece of it which is also fits my worldview because um, if that is the case then I think a lot of my research has social justice implications of How do we make sure that we're providing equitable resources for uh, students, whether they're students based on their racial ethnic background or those who are based on their um, socioeconomic status? How do we make sure that we're redistributing resources in ways that are equitable so that we can build support structures for students who need them the the most? Because again, we see that when that's there, when we can close opportunity gaps, we can actually change achievement gaps. And so um, there's this really, uh, for me, a neat, uh fascination with again understanding the environment how that plays a role in it as well Uh, so it's we have to hold the environment accountable as well so our communities our schools um states they're everyone's accountable for student success
0: yes absolutely um and systems and uh communities in the educational system needs to understand those and be uh, that those factors are happening for some of their students and then and mm-hmm. help them in those ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So what have been a few key takeaways from your research studies?
1: Yeah, you know, and and you know, every time I get that question, this is one of those questions where, you know, I might lose half the audience. So, <laughs> so when I when I first really started to think about uh, in research academic resilience, I was just like, oh, this is gonna be like a gold mine. I'm gonna uncover all these like hidden secrets about like why kids do so well despite like uh, you know craziness going on around them. You know, Oprah's going to interview me. Like this is going to be. It's going to take. <laughs> I'm to write books and all that. And it and it hasn't actually really happened that way. Um, because one of the key takeaways or one of the things that I'm actually finding is that there there is no like hidden ingredients or secret ingredients that actually produce academic resilience. It's really just a bunch of common ingredients. And when those common ingredients are actually present, we actually see these better outcomes for kids who are. Are struggling um and, and one of the the main ingredients um which i guess as a counselor shouldn't be a surprise is relationships like just like meaningful productive positive relationships right and it's not just the relationships in of themselves but it's really about what relationships actually brings to the table right they bring a form of social capital um, they bring a form of inter- um, informational capital um, relationships can actually also provide and support uh what we call aspirational capital right um really facilitating a student's aspirations their hope their expectations, expectations to actually overcome certain adversities uh, we talked more about the social capital so connecting them to resources and other adults within their communities or uh, within um, their school environments that can provide those structures of support that we talked about earlier the informational capital uh, you know i'm doing studies that looks at how information that actually shared, not just about like college application processes and things of that nature, but also information as it relates to just academic performance and achievement. So we call it peer social capital. Uh, So um, there's this reciprocal relationship where I may be terrible in math, but outstanding in reading. And my friend across the hall is terrible at reading, but outstanding in math. And so we help each other out, we actually provide support kind of a peer to peer direct relationship. So we see a lot of um, things really flow through relationships. And um, yeah, for me, it's it's just, it's just, it's fascinating. So it's so simple, yet so complex. And so one of the things I'm trying to understand now is not just, okay, we identify relationships as a really important key ingredient in academic resilience, but how do those relationships work, right? Do they work the same uh, of students of different racial and ethnic backgrounds do they work the same of students who live in poverty versus those who may be having other struggles but live in like a a higher upper income um family or community so how do relationships actually work to um bring about like these positive outcomes Uh, and so relationships is one of them and again i'm I'm a counselor so i shouldn't be surprised i'm almost convinced that relationships are the key to healing just about anything regardless of the problem Uh, but that hasn't been proven just yet Uh, Then you have those other things like culture factors, right? So someone's racial or ethnic identity or their gender identity and how that serves as a buffer against um, certain stress like race-based traumatic stress and things of that nature. So you have these culture pieces, uh, narratives, and how um, studies of um, overcoming from their parents and their grandparents and... Things of that nature the oral traditions how those serve as buffers to actually help kids and provide them with guidance to kind of navigate certain spaces that they're in so a lot of cultural factors as well as support structures right like having somewhere to go after school somewhere where i actually can have structured time somewhere where i can develop positive relationships with adults outside of my house someplace that actually provides the opportunity to build characters whether that's in the basketball court or in the chess club like so you know community services are important one of the things that I'm finding libraries, extremely important. I'm so fascinated by libraries and the services that they provide the communities outside of just books. It's, it's just amazing. It's like we should invest more in libraries because I don't know a, a better example of kind of like this community like service that's really centered and anchored in communities. And so I'm fascinated with librarians and libraries and, and community centers and, and all of those good things. Because again, I'm seeing when I um, interview, a lot of my work is, like um, qualitative um, in terms of like getting student voices and getting like parents' voices and their perspectives of why things are going so well. You see all these different ingredients coming out and it's like, okay, now how do we actually put this all together? How do we use this information to inform interventions or services that we wanna provide to, to students? And so, again, a lot of different factors, but none of them are actually surprising or kind of innovative or cut edge. They're actually kind of common key ingredients that again, you put these things together, you'll have a really good um, recipe for positive outcomes.
0: Yeah, I mean, while you were speaking, I was thinking about mentoring programs and okay. how important mentoring programs are, and um, and I really resonate with the conversation about libraries. I I too think that they are such important. Um, things to have in communities and um, sometimes they are under resourced themselves and so that's that's a challenge for us but it's good for your research to point to the importance of that so that libraries can get that attention
1: yeah (laughs) as well right
0: yeah absolutely and so finally uh what are you currently working on and so what's next for you in terms of your resilience research
1: yeah, so there's, there's two pieces of it. One is uh, what I, I already mentioned in that um, a lot of my research up until this point had been to really identify and better understand the protective factors and processes both individually and environmentally that actually leads to uh, positive academic outcomes for students. Um, and, and so I, I want to take that information and pause and take a step back from just identifying and understanding it, which I think is extremely important thinking about how it translates into interventions. Um, And so how do I actually take the theory piece of it and actually start to test for it? So how do we run programs or organizations that take these key ingredients into consideration and then see, are they producing the outcomes that we think? And so it's kind of moving from um, theories and understanding to more intervention-based work. Uh, So that's one area where I'm I'm hoping that our research is starting to move. Uh, The second one is, and this is like something I realized I feel like of the last few years, um, a lot of my work on academic resilience and I probably should back up. Um, so in order to, to be considered resilient, there has to be a, a certain level of exposure to risk, right? So there's no risk that a student isn't resilient. They may be well adjusted, they may be well-rounded, they may have things together, but they wouldn't be considered resilient, right? There has to be this risk that actually puts them at risk for, like for instance, poor academic um, performance. And so the risk factor that I've been really focusing on over the, you know, really the course of my career has been like poverty, really looking at poverty as a risk factor and how kids and adolescents actually overcome the detrimental impact of poverty to go on to do well, right? And so what are the ways in which they do it? What are the things that uh, their environment provides that allows them to do that and, you know, that line of research is still important, but I think I'm starting to shift more to thinking about racism as the risk factor, right? And so how do kids actually overcome racism? And so I'm working on a, a mobile app right now to better actually identify uh, the different forms of racial microaggressions that K-12 students actually experience on a day-to-day basis, uh, but not just looking at that to look at the detrimental impact it has on their academic or behavioral you know, performance, but really thinking about what we call micro resistance strategies. So what are the ways in which kids actually uh, counteract, you know, actively um, fight against racial microaggressions, right? And what can we learn from that? And how do we actually take that and develop it into interventions? How do we use that and develop into uh, lesson plans that we teach kids about, like, micro resistance strategies? So when someone says this or they touch your hair or they make a statement about, like, you know, you're only here because you're Like, how do you actually can actively help them to be, you know, active and actually addressing it, right? So not kind of a passive recipient of it, but to actually say something. So, so what does that look like? And you know, I think my line of research is starting to um, really move in that direction of thinking about how do we actually overcome the day-to-day experiences of, of racism, right? And I would assume that similar to academic resilience, and this battle against poverty, there's going to be both individual and environmental protective factors that allow us to actually to, to do that. So that's um, hopefully where we'll all be um, camped out for the next few years.
0: <laughs> I appreciate the conversation about microaggressions. I think it is important to name them uh, yeah. because that's part of the issue is that it's not as overt, right? So mm-hmm. Uh, as adults and even as, then as as children, you're not realizing in mm-hmm. that moment, perhaps, mm-hmm. the harm or, or um, impact that that has at that mm-hmm. time. And it is, I think, important to name those, mm-hmm. what those examples are. And then, as you're saying, giving examples of how to build that resilience over time. So yeah, yeah. naming it and um, uh, for all, for students as well as for all of us so I appreciate that that's an important part and um, thank you for working on that that's important so
1: yeah yeah it's kind of um more of a hot topic now than I thought it would ever be right so in order to, to to help kids to kind of express what they're experiencing which I think normalizes and validates their experiences um we have to talk about like race and racism, right? And, and my population that I've studied is five to 18. So this is school age kids, which means that we have to have these conversations like within schools, which is again, it's a it's a topic of concern for some that to, to broach these conversations would do undue risk or things of that nature, which I don't believe to be the case. But yeah, yeah, it, it has some really uh, interesting political implications now, right? I'm thinking about race and racism and. How and when we should introduce that to school age kids and where. Yeah.
0: Right. And the training for the teachers mm-hmm. and the administrators yes. on how to best uh, you know, provide these examples and to then provide uh, the answers to how to deal with these things yes. on a day-to-day basis. That's important yeah. too.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, as, as well as holding themselves accountable, right? And so what sure. we see in research is that the microaggressions aren't just like peer-to-peer but you get them from teacher to peer, administrative to peer. So, you know, so, so there's, it's, they're all over the place. In the hallways, the cafeterias, classrooms, auditorium, that they're present, right? Um, so, yeah, so it requires um, a certain level of um, training and awareness from, from teachers and educators as well. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate this, um, Professor Williams, for you sharing this information about your research. Um and I appreciate you taking time to share your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and, and families.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Susan. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Okay, great. And, and, and thank you for listening for our upcoming podcasts and other Lifetime Learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify and with Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to taking part in future lifetime learning programs.